This episode of the podcast is dedicated to the late Tim Skelly, a true original and a pioneer of the form. This is Warren Davis, designer and programmer of Qbert, and you are listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with Paul Drury, Richard May, and Tony Temple. Welcome to the very first episode of the Ted Dabney Experience. I'm Richard May, and this is a podcast project conceived largely to allow Tony Temple, Paul Drury and I an opportunity to speak at length with notable figures from the golden age of video arcade gaming. Mr. Drury Hello. is a long-time contributor to Retro Gamer magazine, and those of you in the know will recognise Tony Hello. as not only the official high-score world record holder for Atari's Missile Command, but the proprietor of ArcadeBlogger.com. I am a collector of classic arcade games. But without further ado, waiting patiently on the line is none other than the co-parent of Qbert himself, Mr. Warren Davis. Uh, let's see, what's my line again? Uh, hi. Hi, Warren. <laughs> we consummate pros, Warren. Welcome to the podcast, Warren. I want to start by uh, taking you back to when you were a lot younger, when you did a course in improvisational comedy. Um, is improv comedy a good preparation for game design? You know, um, improv comedy is is a good preparation for literally anything in life. Uh, it's uh, and, and when I was learning improv, there were many people taking classes who were not, uh, you know, whose goal was not to be an improv comedy performer. There were... Uh, creative types there, writers, a lot of writers uh, would take improv. Uh, some actors who just use wanted to use it as a tool to free themselves up in some way. But I think improv offers a lot to anyone um, just for life because it sort of teaches you a few things like uh, how to be in the moment and just be present in the current moment. And how to, it also teaches you how to listen and really take in what other people are giving you because um, improvisation on stage is all about uh, taking cues from the other people. It's not about imposing your will. It's supposed to be about you uh, hearing what the other people are saying. And, you, you know, there's this phrase, yes, and. Uh, and that's what improv is about. You say, yes, and. So you take in what you hear and you add to it. So when you started at Gottlieb very early in the 80s and very early in the whole video game business... Tell us how you applied some of your skills when it came to actually coming up and creating a game. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say I consciously applied those skills, but, um, you know, it's like I said, it's just, you, you, you use these, um, in your everyday life. So, um, it wasn't like I was consciously saying, mm, how can I use these improv principles? Uh, I was just going about my daily life and, and, you know, my, my as I'm sure, you know, the, the story of Qbert is, is an evolutionary design as opposed to a predetermined design. It, it evolved as I went along. And, um, I think the reason I took that approach was because I knew enough to know that I didn't, have a master plan. I didn't have the experience or the, 
you know, the, um, the knowledge to come up with a master plan for a video game. So uh, it was my first game also. So I was teaching myself programming techniques. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's just so, that's, that's why it evolved. And then in, in the evolution of it, you just keep yourselves open. You know, you, you should oh, keep your mind open to uh, all ideas, all suggestions. And I became uh, a filter for which, you know, I would, I would take the things that I heard that I liked and I would reject the things that I did not like or did not think I could do or did not think belonged in the game. So you mentioned how important it was to listen to people. Tell us who you were listening to when you first started at Gottlieb. Um, you know, the, well, the, uh, one of the, the things about the environment back then was uh, the guys who created the video department, Howie Rubin and uh, Ron Waxman, um, were pretty upfront about the fact that they did not know what a great video game was. They, you know, it was a new industry. Um, games would come out that were radically different from anything that came out before. It was a time of exploration. And uh, so they weren't, uh, you know, they certainly didn't impose any ideas on anyone. They might have ideas and share them, but they didn't impose anything. Uh, and, and the only thing that we had that was even close to a, sort of a, a guide or a mentor was Tim Skelly. Uh, Tim Skelly hired, um, because of his track record, um, working for Cinematronics. So they, they hired him and uh, asked him to do a game. And he did the first in-house game that Gottlieb made, which was Reactor. So in a way, he was sort of our guide and our mentor. Uh, but even he did not, you know, impose anything on us or, or tell us what to do or, or, or anything like that. He, he kind of worked on his own. And, it, you know, if we asked him for help, he would certainly give it. But um, Did with any sense you had played his games before you got to Gottlieb? Was there any kind of, you know, hero worship going on there? You know, well, so here's the thing. You know, back then, nobody really knew who was making these games. There, there was no, um, you know, people were very secretive uh, about who was making a game. I think the only... I don't even think I knew the name Eugene Jarvis back then um, because, you know, even though in in the industry, maybe, uh, you know, Eugene and Larry DeMar were, were getting uh, acclaim and uh, maybe a little bit of uh, self-sufficiency in, in breaking off from Williams and sort of starting their own company, um, you know, most people were just, they just sort of acted in, uh, toiled in, in obscurity <laughs> or anonymity, I should say. Uh, and, and me coming out, you know, I, I, this was my first job. I just started at Gottlieb in January of 1982, never had any connection to the industry. So I didn't know any names of people who were part of the industry. So yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I knew of his games, but I didn't know of him until I came to work for Gottlieb and met him. Let's come on, actually, to those uh, quite big characters that were your bosses. Tell us a little bit about this first, this character, Ron, Ron Waxman. Well, Ron was the VP of engineering, and uh, he was a very uh, large, rotund man uh, who had a very kind of a gruff demeanor. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he was actually a pussycat. He was really a wonderful guy. But... Um, you, you know, you didn't know that when you first met him. And uh, my first meeting with him was actually when I came in 
to interview at Ghalib, I, I ran into this man who was sort of walking out when I was walking in or he was walking into another entrance uh, from the main entrance and we just passed cross paths and, and he said, are you here for an interview? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, watch out for that Waxman guy. He's a real asshole. And I was like, oh, okay. And then, of course, I went into interview and I was shown the, you know, given a tour and met a whole bunch of people and then eventually ended up in a conference room to meet the vice president of engineering. And lo and behold, it's the same man who gave me that advice outside. What do you think he was trying to get you to do there? Was he trying to test whether you could think on your feet? I think he was just having a joke. Uh, the interview with him, though, was um, pretty interesting and unusual. I mean, he, he, uh, like I said, his demeanor was just very gruff. He didn't smile. He didn't make you feel at ease. You know, he would ask questions like, uh, what makes you think you could make video games? <laughs> you know what I mean? There's sort of a, 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 an answer embedded in the question, you know? Warren, um, from your interview with Gottlieb, did you immediately get a sense that things were different, i.e. it was a fun environment compared to where you'd come from? Um, you know, it was hard to tell. Uh, it certainly was smaller. Uh, Bell Laboratories, I, it was a huge, huge building with, you know, I don't know, thousands of people maybe. Uh, and uh, very structured, very corporate. Uh, for the most part, this did not seem like that because it was, you know, maybe it seemed like maybe 15 people worked in this building. So it was a very small company. Um, and most of the people I met were pretty cool, especially artists. I remember uh, meeting Jeff Lee, who who was already working there. And I thought, wow, this guy's cool, you know. And, and I've, I've always had an admiration for artists and people who are artistically talented. So um, I thought, oh, this is, this is a cool person uh, to be around. But then I also met a couple of engineers who seemed too much like the engineers I didn't really like at uh, Bell Labs, you know, who had spoken acronyms and spoken computer, you know, computer language as opposed to English. Um, I was always a fan of speaking in English, you know, and not like talking jargon. So, uh, you know, it was a little difficult for me, but, uh, but I, again, I had to sort of weigh the pluses and minuses and my attitude was, well, you know, it's an opportunity to make video games, which is something I'd, I'd dreamed about ever since video games existed. And, uh, you know, and I always thought, if I don't like it, I can quit. I quit Bell Labs. I can quit this place. So the interview was, was really more about um, establishing who you were as a person and whether, you, whether you'd fit in as opposed to your technical knowledge. Well, no, they, they, they wanted to know about my technical knowledge as well. Okay. Yeah. So it was, it was a pretty comprehensive interview, but, um, you know, I, I didn't, had no idea when I left uh, if they would offer me a job or not. And especially after that interview with Waxman, who I just thought, oh, my God, every, you know, he just seemed to hate everything I said. So I was like, you know, they're not I, they're not giving me this job. But lo and behold, they they offered me a job. But uh, a couple of days later, I got the offer. Warren Hay, tell us more about Jeff, who designed the Qbert character. He designed all the characters. Um, 
So Jeff, you know, Jeff was an artist uh, and back, at, you know, at Gottlieb, artists were considered uh, support, just like sound people. So the the designer, uh, the programmer was considered the designer and the programmers were responsible with coming up with ideas and programming them. Um, Jeff was basically... I think he was the only artist in the company. I mean, there were other, there were some programmers who did their own art. For example, uh, Tim Skelly uh, did his own artwork. And uh, Chris Brewer was another uh, programmer. He did uh, Mach 3. Uh, and, he, and he was also an artist and, and he would also do his own uh, video graphics. But, uh, you know, uh, the only other person that I can recall that was a video graphic artist was Jeff. So he supported all the games. And when I uh, started this programming exercise that be turned into Qbert, because that's what it was, just a programming exercise, uh, I went to Jeff for whatever art needs I had. So uh, like when I needed a player character, uh, I remember going over to him one day and saying, you know, I've got this pyramid of cubes with a ball bouncing down. I've gotten that far and people seem to think it's cool. And I'm just, I figured the next thing is to have a player character uh, who can just sort of hop around from cube to cube. So that's my next goal. Uh, do you have any characters lying around I might use? And he put a bunch of characters up on the screen that he he had already designed. And, and you know, he, he his hopes were that they would be used for some game. Um, he he might have had his own game designs uh, in his head, but, uh, you know. Jeff is the the artist who linked two of my favorite games, um, one of them being Qbert and the other being Mad Planets, um, both of which I'm rubbish at, it has to be said. Mm. Um, <laughs> can you talk to us about Khan Yabamoto, the late Khan Yabamoto? Sure, sure, absolutely. He, um, uh, he was there before me, um, and, um, you know, he was... Uh, yeah, I think he took a more of a scientific approach to game design. I think uh, Mad Planet sort of came out of that. He was really interested in the physics of things. Um, but he was working on, I mean, I mean, the inspiration for Qbert basically came from seeing him working on a screen that was supplied to him by Jeff, uh, which was Escher cubes that filled the screen. And... Um, he was doing something where he was sort of, because um, we had a switch in our hardware that let you flip the foreground and background planes. And he was working on something where he flipped the foreground and background planes and sort of like was removing pieces of the background to reveal the foreground behind it. But what he was using for his background was this screen that was just sort of filled with this Escher illusion of cubes. And when I saw that, um, in my mind, I imagined this as a pyramid because if, if a ball, let's say, or some object were to fall onto a cube, it would have one of two ways to bounce. And that's binary and programmers like binary stuff. And anyway, so, you know, um, if you carved a pyramid out of it and a ball fell on the top, you know, you'd have a random path that would take it to the bottom. Anyway, that's where the pyramid came from. So Khan was, you know, and Jeff both were instrumental in that sort of piece of fortuitous uh, happening. Did you did you stay in touch with Khan, um, Warren, um, uh, in more recent years? Uh, well, I, I, I did for a while. In fact, uh, so after Gottlieb closed, um, all of us went our separate ways. Uh, I ended up back 
at Williams. But what, what Khan did is he partnered with uh, Jun Yum. Jun was the hardware designer who created the Gottlieb uh, video arcade game hardware system, which was used in pretty much all of our games, including the Laserdisc ones. Um, Jun was the hardware designer responsible for that. So um, Jun and Khan created a company called Pixel Lab. Uh, and they took on, you know, consulting jobs and uh, made a, actually they made a debugger for a, a processor called the 34010 processor. It was a graphics processor made by Texas Instruments. Uh, it actually was the basis for Williams uh, hardware, um, the 34010, uh, their later hardware. Uh, they actually hired me uh part-time so i for for there was a time where i was between other jobs and i was actually working for pixel lab it must be gratifying for you to see mad planets receive the acclaim and attention it it, it now does that it probably did back in the day due to the limited number of cabinets that were produced yeah i, I well i i feel good for khan that's a you know it's sort of a vindication of his design that so many people remember mad planets today even though it didn't uh, sell as well. It didn't, I mean, you know, it, it was okay. I think it was respectable, but it, you know, it wasn't a huge hit or anything. And, uh, just the fact that it has such staying power and people still remember it is a, is a testament to Khan. I'm uh, intrigued that you've worked on games that have been huge hits, for example, Cubert, and you've been on interesting games like Exterminator which weren't. So at what point in developing a game do you think this is going to be a hit? Well, for me, personally, uh, I would say I I never know. I mean, I thought Qbert was pretty cool when I was making it, but I didn't know people were going to like it. I had no idea. Um, I thought Exterminator was pretty cool when I was making it, although I I understand, you know, there's, there are always other factors. Um, like with us, us versus them is another example. Uh, I thought us versus them was was sort of groundbreaking, and and it it really was. The thing that stopped us versus them from being a monster hit was the fact that the laserdisc market collapsed just as it came out. Um, it was testing fantastically. It, we everybody believed that it was going to be a huge hit. Let's talk a bit about how that came about. So off the back of Cubert, it would seem logical to, oh, should we do a sequel or something like that? But no, apparently someone says, why don't we create a film com game? Well, f let me just correct your timeline. There. <laughs> it wasn't quite the way you described it. Um, I was asked to do a sequel after Cubert. Um, I, I declined because, you know, Cubert was, again, my first game. It was really wonderful. It was a great experience. But when I was done with it, I felt like I was done with it. I, I was, I, I really wanted to go on and try other things. Do you think, do you, do you need a new challenge? Do you get bored easily? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I always like a challenge. I think, I think, I think that's a good thing to do is to challenge yourself. I don't think uh, getting complacent and doing the same thing over and over again would be very satisfying for me personally. So but being asked to produce a game on this brand new Laserdisc technology, there was no trepidation on your part. Well, again, let me sort of correct the inherent assumption in what you said, because yeah, it wasn't a brand new system. We had already done Mach 3. So 
Uh, Mach 3 was the first Laserdisc game that Gottlieb made, and it was a huge success. And it was because it was a huge success that when it's, you know, when its lifespan started to wane, you know, people had played it enough and now it wasn't collecting as much quarters, they wanted a, a kit. Uh, they wanted a new game that could be a kit that would go into those cabinets. And, and so Dennis Nordman uh, came up with this idea for sort of like a, a B-movie, science fiction movie concept. And, you know, he came to me and said, would you be interested in working on this? And I was thrilled because I loved the concept of it. I love sci-fi and, and I just thought there was so much you could do with um, flying footage, with actors. Uh, and that was really what made it revolutionary was having these scenes with actors. Had you got a, a background in film then? Kind of, uh, in a way. I mean, my background was when I was a teenager, I made films. I made little short films. I I loved the idea of being a filmmaker. And when I was in high school, my two possible career paths were filmmaking or computers. And, you know, mo most of the uh, adults in my life steered me towards computers because they thought that Filmmaking, I think, was a little bit more of a fool's errand. But, you know, now here was an opportunity to go back to this thing that I love, this idea of filmmaking. Um, so, yeah, I jumped at the opportunity to work with Dennis on that. You, you were there when the actual some of the footage was uh, was actually filmed. So were you actually in the plane telling the pilots what direction to, to take? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was part of every uh, everything except... Um, what I wasn't part of was procuring um, a lot of the things we use. So I, I, and I've got to believe that was Rich Tracy. He was our art director. Um, we had already uh, used Clay Lacey. Uh, that's a company that does flying footage out uh, here in California. And we had already used them for Mach 3 to give us our flying footage. So uh, I think that was sort of a no brainer to contact them. Um, but somebody also got some producers out in California to sort of, you know, spearhead the, the filming. Um, since we, this isn't, that wasn't something we wanted to do ourselves or, or could spend a lot of time doing ourselves. And the concept required us going to different parts of the country to, to, to shoot some background footage. And then as far as the, the live actors, uh, Rich Tracy had to be the guy who found this production company and uh, found a casting director so we could set up auditions. Uh, I, I have no idea who did like costume design, but the production company did set design. So those were all the things that I wasn't involved in. But what I was involved in was uh, writing the script with, with Dennis and another guy named Dave Faust. Um, and I was there... Uh, every day of the shoot with the actors. Did you actually get to stand there and say, do that again with feeling? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, the The guy who was the, the quotes unquote director, the guy who worked for the production company and was really uh, calling the shots and it was his crew. Um, you know, he, he was wonderful, but he, he didn't really have a sense of what we were going for sort of artistically. Uh, the, the cheesy quality of it or the heightened B-movie dramatic quality of it. So uh, during the shoot, I found, you know, he was just getting these sort of lackluster shots, very bland, very uninteresting. The actors, you know, were not 
giving what I was hoping we would get for performances. And so, you know, I would kind of stick my nose in and just say, hey, can I, is it okay if I talk to the actors? Or then I would say, you know, is it, can we get a little bit of a maybe more dramatic angle? Like, can you lower the camera and shoot up or this or that? And um, I just kept insinuating myself until we got what we wanted. And, and eventually he just would let me basically call the shots. <laughs> I'm intrigued that you produced a really interesting game based on this very interesting, and as you correctly point out, very popular technology, uh, LaserDisc. At what point did someone say things are going wrong out there in the arcade? I know that the game was... Uh, us versus them was out on test for weeks and was testing very well. And I know that Gottlieb had was gearing up because it was doing so well. They were not just going to produce a kit, but they were actually going to produce and did produce um, dedicated units. They had orders from their distributors to to you know this game was really on track to be a hit. And and it wasn't until that point that. Um, I guess, you know, operators were becoming aware of the problems and the problems were really affecting earnings. And at some point, um, the distributors backed out and they, they basically said, no, we don't want them. We don't want any Laserdisc games. And what I wonder how that feels when you've poured your heart and soul into something and due to presumably arcade goes kicking the machines, suddenly this dream of producing these interesting mix of games and film is gone. How do you respond to something like that? Uh, it, well, you, you, you roll with the punches. It's, it's it does not <laughs> feel good. It feels pretty terrible actually. Um, but there's nothing you can do. It's completely out of your control. There's, there's literally nothing you can do. Cause it's not the only game that either has not performed or indeed has not actually got, finished is being used to failure is that an inherent part of being in the video game business yeah absolutely i mean i think it's part of being involved in any artistic pursuit uh, whether it's uh, movie making or theater or music um you're you're gonna make something and you're gonna put it out there and you know people are either gonna like it not like it or not care and you have to you know you just have to accept that once it's out in the marketplace it's it's uh it is what it is you 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 can do your best and you know maybe you maybe you didn't even do your best maybe you just put out a piece of schlock because you had to you know i don't know i don't think i've ever done that in my career but well of all the games that didn't quite make it out there which one do you wish had actually you know got to completion and people had actually got to play it well the thing about us versus them is that it did get to completion and they did get out there, but that's when the bottom fell out. So yeah, I, but I think that's probably my biggest regret in my entire career is is us versus them, that it didn't do better because the potential was there. Uh, the testing, the, the coin returns were just phenomenal. Uh, and it's I feel it's just a shame that a lot more people at that time didn't didn't get to experience it because to me it, it it was something I was very proud of it it remains probably the the thing I'm the most proud of in my career. Warren, tell us about the the, the testing process itself. Well, let's see. We had a, a many different uh, things at our disposal. So the first uh, line of testing is usually just internal comments, internal feedback. You know, people in the office would play it. You'd get feedback. You'd either take it or not, depending on what you thought. Um, so we had 
uh, arcades in the area that we worked with where we would put a game out on test uh, and just see how people responded and, and also see how it collected because coin collections were a huge part of testing. If we wanted to sell these things, we had to show people it could earn money. So we put it out on test, but I, I found that just watching people play was really, really useful. We also did um, focus groups where we would, you know, go to a mall and, uh, you know, ask people if they wanted, you know, for 20 bucks or something to come in and evaluate a new video game or something. And so we would get people in a room and, you know, there was the one-way mirror and, uh, you know, it was was fascinating for me was that, you know, I always believe watching people play is much more valuable than hearing their comments. Because I would see people who were just either having a great time uh, and then afterwards you'd ask them, they were like, yeah, it was okay. But you could see how much they were into it when they were doing it. With Cubert Warren, I mean, one of the very first things I did when I played Cubert was jump off the back of the uh, the pyramid. So I'm mm. assuming you witnessed many, many people doing the same back in the day. Oh, yeah, that uh, that really terrified me. And, and this was a concern that was given to me in the office that people were uh, people found it very difficult and were always encouraging me to make it easier but i did stick to my guns on certain things like for one thing jumping off the pyramid people were like oh you you should make it so he can't jump off the pyramid and i just thought no for a couple of reasons one it's just too cool i just thought it was too cool to see him disappear behind the pyramid and fall down to the bottom of the cabinet and then you get the cartoon balloon i just thought no that's that's too cool and i thought it's it's something that people should learn i just thought if you make it you know if you make it too easy it's it's not going to be fun there has to be some element of danger so yeah, for sure what, what about the funny angled joystick yeah that was the other thing you know um uh, in in development when i didn't have a cabinet yet Uh, I just had, you know, all the disparate parts of a video game system lying on a desk. Uh, I've seen the the photograph. Yeah. The joystick was basically mounted to the, to the bottom of a Tupperware bucket, a plastic bucket. And, uh, you know, it was mounted and I had the thing, you know, turned at a 45 degree angle. So, so it would work the way it was intended, but people would always, you know, sort of reorient it 45 degrees and then... (laughs) be like, well, why can't I control this? And I'd say like, well, you got it. It's at 45 degrees. And they're like, what? And, and a lot of people could not process that. Um, but that was another area where I stuck to my guns and it did not change. And of course you sped Qubit up a little for the um, uh, the sequel, faster, harder, more challenging Qubit. Yeah, so exactly, which you know, to me is not so much a sequel as a retuning, because um, almost immediately after the game was released, you know, maybe we had a few weeks where I just sort of breathed a sigh of relief and felt proud of myself, but then reports started coming in that people were playing it for hours on a single quarter. Well, that's that's not a good sign. You don't want that. I mean, it's okay if a few people can do it, because then everybody else wants to attain that you know, but I was freaking out because I was thinking like, oh my God, I made it too easy. So uh, I set about uh, on my own, nobody asked me to do it. I set about retuning it. um, And that 
became faster, harder, more challenging Qbert, which to me is that that is my Qbert of choice. That is the director's cut. And that's available because you released the ROM for it, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> in the mid 90s. <laughs> yes. Gottlieb did not. Um, did not want to release it. Well, they, they they actually did put it out on test, but it was so close to the release of Qbert that most people just found it really, really hard. And it was there alongside the the, the original Qbert. So people would play the original Qbert and of course it didn't collect any money. So my, my hope was that they would hold on to it for a year. And then, you know, when Qbert maybe was waning or when enough people got good at Qbert, that would be the time to kind of put it out. But they did not do that for some reason. They uh, they just sort of shelved it. And I had those ROMs in my personal Kubert uh, cabinet at home for uh, 15 years or so. And then um, when I was working at Disney, I met a guy named Fred Susukian who worked with me. And he was involved in the MAME project, which I had no knowledge of whatsoever. And just the, this concept that people were writing software emulators for a PC to emulate like all sorts of uh, um, video arcade game hardware. I, I just thought that was like an insane concept. Like, why would anybody do that? But mm -hmm. uh, they had emulated Gottlieb's hardware. And I said, you know, I've, I've got this version of Qbert. It's been sitting in my own cabinets. It's literally just a ROM swap. That's all you need to do. And he said, well, you know, if, if you want to release those ROMs, I can... I can make that happen. And that's exactly what happened. That's amazing. Presumably you thought that had been kind of lost forever. Yeah. I, I was just happy to, uh, you know, you know, put it out in the world and let people have the opportunity to play it. Warren, I wonder if we can jump ahead slightly and talk briefly about WTARG. Sure. Um, and uh, clearly after you've explained what, WTARG is for our listeners. I wonder if you can talk a bit about the difference between creating something like WTARG, which is designed to facilitate the, the, the development of video games versus actually developing a video game. Sure. Um, well, I mean, even back at uh, Gottlieb and when I first went to Williams and we were working on 16 color systems, you know, there needs to be some sort of tools in order to generate images. And it used to be very simple. Uh, both Williams and Gottlieb had uh, similar tools that would basically put up a grid of uh, pixels, a 16 by 16 grid, and you'd plop colors into it. And that's how you'd make your sprites. But when I went to Williams and we started developing 256 color hardware, it occurred to me that with, with that many colors, and we were used to having a palette of 16 colors and that's it. And suddenly you have 256 colors. That's a lot. And it occurred to me, you might be able to get closer to something photorealistic. And it was, you know, having worked on Laserdisc games, it was always my dream to have a video game system have literally, you know, movie quality graphics. But, you know, with, with the processors we had, with the memory and the speed, we just couldn't do it. But here now we were taking a, a leap forward with 256 colors. And I thought, all right, we need a tool. And I had discovered at the time uh, something for the Amiga. Somebody had just released a video digitizer for the Amiga. And that's what got me so excited about all this because there was this hardware that, that existed that let you digitize images. 
Um, but it's, it's still very clunky. It took years before uh, the the Targa board came out. That's what really allowed me to come up with a useful tool for digitization. And that and that and the software that I wrote became called WTARG. And the first game to use that technology, uh, Narc. Warren, yeah, Narc. Yeah. So NARC was the first game that uh, Williams put out with their 256 color system. And um, Eugene Jarvis had come back to Williams and he spearheaded this uh, system. Uh, And we divided it up so that uh, Eugene did the operating system. I did the display system. And then we had basically a, a software, a piece of, you know, we had software to run any game. It's sort of generic. And then we split up into two teams because at the time Williams... The, the the video crash of 1984 pretty much decimated the video department. And at this time, there were only enough that people in the video department for two games. In fact, I don't think anybody else was programming video games at the time. Eugene and me were the only uh, programmers. And then George Petro was there. But George was young and um, I'm not even sure if he was out of school. He might have been just out of school. So... Uh, Eugene and George and Jack Hager, who is phenomenally talented artist, uh, they became the core team for NARC. And myself and uh, John Newcomer um, became the team for another game, which was never released, which is a that's a whole nother story. Well, I, I want to know that story because I, I want to know whether there was any rivalry between you and uh, Eugene, who, who was something of a name back then. Uh, I did not think there was any rivalry uh between us i was uh i was hugely a fan of uh eugene's ability i mean i'm not i'm not a huge uh like defender player that was never like my style of game but i admired him and larry demar for what they created and of course you know stargate robotron uh he he was a legend even at that time he was a legend and um you know, so I, yeah, I did not feel any kind of rivalry. Uh, what I did want was the ability to make a game, which they gave me. So I was working with John Newcomer on a game called USSA was the working title. It's supposed to be a cross between USSR and USA. Uh, it was originally a, a tank game. So basically what we, our thought was to up, update the old tank game, which was a top-down view with some tanks roaming around in a maze, but we wanted to update that with digitized graphics. And, um, you know, now we have the ability to do that. So that was, you know, that was the concept of it and it evolved into something slightly different, but um, ultimately- Why did you get, why was it stopped development? Was that because Eugene's project just took priority? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So what happened was there was a there was a lot of internal. Um, and I, again, I, I don't understand why we couldn't do both games. Uh, that's just something I never I never understood. But uh, the word came down from above at one point that um, we were canceling USSA, and you know John and I were both crushed. We really. Uh, thought it was coming along. It was, you know, I'd say maybe 70 to 75% developed. And, um, you know, we were, we were thinking there was potential there. And, and I thought there's room enough for two games, you know, listen, and I, maybe I was a little spoiled from Gottlieb because at Gottlieb, I could literally do anything I wanted. I, I, after Qbert, uh, nobody really imposed 
anything on me. Uh, and things changed at Gottlieb towards the end um, before they were shut down uh, because they had grown. They had hired a lot of programmers. A lot of those programmers were not delivering <laughs> games. And uh, so that, you know, it was sort of, they were starting to feel maybe this, this strategy is not working for us, you know? Uh, and so they brought in a manager, a middle manager who was there to sort of crack the whip. But even then, even as things changed, I, I still sort of had a little bit of freedom to sort of develop what I wanted. I know. I, I understand that, you know, you weren't super keen uh, necessarily on everything you handed. What you were keen on uh, when you were asked to work on Terminator 2, uh, how did you feel when you actually asked to do something that you clearly cared about? Williams gave me a call. In the middle of Terminator 2, they had lost a programmer and they needed somebody who could come up to speed, who knew the system. And so I was asked back. And I have to say, I don't think I knew it was Terminator 2 right off the bat. It was a little bit of a secretive project. But um, when I did find out, yeah, I was all in. I, I was hugely excited. Warren, did you get to meet any anybody involved with the movie um particularly the cast with t2 i did not uh in fact um all of that work had pretty much been done before i came on board so people had been out to california uh they had shot some video of uh eddie furlong just for the game uh of robert patrick just for the game uh, they did not get Linda Hamilton or Arnold Schwarzenegger, but they got their stunt doubles. So the video uh, that you see in the in the game of Linda Hamilton is is actually her stunt double, and of the the one the video of Arnold Schwarzenegger is his stunt double wearing an Arnold mask, which was fascinating. And they also uh, they also were on all the set pieces. They they had uh, they got reference video for all of the set pieces, uh, which is why, you know, our graphics looked so great and looked so much like the movie. And we had stuff, we, we had gotten video of stuff that was cut out of the movie. So, you know, a lot of the stuff, there was a whole section planned for the movie that took place in the future. And that eventually got cut. But uh, we actually put it in the game because the game was being made, you know, while the movie was being made. Warren, how did you take to working on a game which was so blatantly a coin muncher? <laughs> as, all, as, all, as all video arcade games kind of are, but T2, yeah. I find especially. Well, that's, you know, that's the business uh, side of things. You know, you, you sure. want to make something that's fun and that people like, but you also need to have it collect money. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I never had any illusions about that. My goal always was to, you know, make the experience worth wanting to put quarters in the machine. That was that sure. was always my thing. Now, I was not the lead programmer or the designer on Terminator 2. I, I came in as the senior programmer and, you know, so I pretty much did what I was asked to do. I did get an opportunity to sort of add a few creative touches of my own, um, but mostly, you know, I, I, I don't take uh, design credit for that game. Warren, when you came back to Williams, what was the technology being used for the capture of the characters? Right. So I, I had been gone for about three years. And when I came back, I, I guess I had just assumed that uh, somebody would sort of pick up the mantle and keep improving 
my WTARG system, memory was getting uh, cheaper and more plentiful. CPUs were getting faster. I just sort of assumed somebody would be continuing to develop it. And when I came back, I found that nobody was. They were still using the exact same technology that had been there three years ago. Um, so I took it upon myself when I got back to bring it up to speed. And, and so, you know, part of the problem was we were using videotape. Um, so we would videotape something and then we would have to freeze frame the videotape, grab a single frame and the artist would have to sort of clean it up and strip out the background manually. But, you know, we were getting to a point where the hardware was allowing us to do a little bit better than that. Um, a new Targa board had a chroma key feature. So if you could shoot something against a, a chroma key blue background, you could literally key out the background and that would save the artists uh, some time. And we, and you know, if you could shoot live and grab your images live without putting them on videotape, that also would make your images a lot cleaner because the videotape would add some bleed and then the artists would have to clean up sort of like a blue glow around the characters. So there was plenty to do. And, and I took it upon myself to keep doing that. And I did, I, I just kept improving the system and our hardware. That's the other thing. Our, our actual video game hardware had improved to the point where instead of just 256 colors, we now had um, a palette memory so we could have multiple palettes of 256 colors. So we could allocate 256 colors just to, let's say, one character, which would Im greatly improve the color resolution of those characters. So there was just so, it was a very exciting time. There was just a lot that could be done to keep improving the graphics. All of which is, of course, a fantastic segue into Mortal Kombat. Well, Mortal Kombat was not, you know, me in any way. It was basically uh, Ed Boon and John Tobias came up with the concept using the original version of WTAR because they, they started on uh, Mortal Kombat um, while I was gone. So Mortal Kombat was sort of being developed while T2 was being developed. Okay. But they were still, you know, using the original techniques of having to videotape people and manually freeze frame and strip out the frame. Uh, yeah, it was a huge pain for John Tobias. But, but the genius of what they did and what he did, John Tobias, was the idea of having these larger characters. Because with the, with the pixel resolution we had, the, the larger the character, the more detail mm. and the more they looked real the more you know because in narc for example um the characters were so cleaned up they didn't always look like they were digitized warren i'm interested in your work on the aerosmith game mainly because aerosmith are renowned for their industrial uses of pharmaceuticals so uh, please tell us that you parted hard with aerosmith <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know about partied hard, but we we were so excited uh, to have them. That was like an un unbelievable thrill, and we were prepared. We we you know we treated them like uh, royalty. Uh, you know, uh, we had you know food, and we had a, a a green room and a dressing room. And the thing is, they were so cool. They were just so easygoing and down to earth. And we had them for three thirteen-hour days. They spent three continuous days, 13 hours a day, just basically doing whatever George and Jack, who were the, the leads, it was basically, uh, it was a, some, the, the Terminator 2 team moved on to do Revolution X and George, uh, George Petro and Jack Hager were the leads. Aerosmith just 
did whatever we needed. You know, they, they had a whole script. They knew all the shots they wanted to get and uh, they were just so game. And, and I'll never forget that experience. If they've worked 13 hours in a row, surely that they had some pharmaceutical help there, surely. No, no, they were clean at this point. They uh, they had cleaned up their act. How disappointing. Perhaps we should just have a little segue there. Is that, you know, you were there through the 80s and 90s in the video game business. We hear amazing stories about Atari and Hot tubs um warren i think this is the point where you tell us about your cocaine habit <laughs> did you did was it a bit rock and roll in those early days that's the impression we kind of get so at gottlieb did you did you go out and party with people or at williams did you hit chicago hard <laughs> no not at all uh got well, first of all gottlieb was not a partying crowd we were all pretty much nerdy i'd say we were all a bunch of nerds uh you know i say that lovingly um, uh, Williams, you know, not so much. The, the Williams crowd was that they were, a, they were definitely a cooler, uh, a group of people. I mean, I heard stories about what happened at Williams before my time. You know what I mean? So like in the, cause I didn't start at Williams till what, 80, 86, I think. So, uh, but in the early eighties, maybe the late seventies, you know, you'd, you'd hear, you'd hear stories about those days. Yes. Listen, a lot of people. A lot of people accuse me of taking drugs to come up with Qbert. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I had more experiences in a hot tub um, after I moved to L.A. that that were not game related. So, yeah. <laughs> and I got to tell you, you know, who has a hot tub in Chicago? I'm intrigued that we've managed to talk about the many, many games that you've uh, done over You've many, many years in the video game business. Yet the one that you're still most associated with is Cubert. Um, do you ever get sick of people asking you about that one part of your career? No, uh, I'm. Uh, I'm very pleased. It's it's a it's an honor to be remembered for something um, that that people enjoyed and have fond memories of. So. Do people still come up to you and go, hey, you're the Cubert guy? Generally, no, because nobody reckon. I mean, how would anybody know that I'm the Cubert guy? I'm really kind of wonderfully anonymous, you know? I just go throughout my life. Um, but I do go to retro gaming shows and I give talks and um, I'm always available there for, to talk to people. In fact, that's one of the, the main joys of going to these shows for me is to connect with people. And uh, yes, people, you know, people do tell me how much the game meant to them and how much they enjoyed it. And that that is just rewarding beyond description. You don't own the rights to that uh, that game that you created. Do you ever feel um, slightly protective when people perhaps, you know, put Cuba in, in a film, for example, or, or put him in a cartoon and give him arms, which is obviously <laughs> fundamentally wrong? Yeah, I... I um protective i don't know if protective is the right word i mean i i, I mean certainly um i have a connection with this it was you know something that i was able to create with jeff and dave and and so i think we all have a sense of ownership in the character even though we don't own the rights but um it's not like I'd be doing something different with him if I did have the rights. I I don't think you know what I mean. I it's so you know it's it it's kind of how do I describe this? It's uh, I think it's a little bit like when people talk about colorizing black and white movies. You know, I mean the black and white movie is always there. You you, you can't erase that. 
So even if somebody colorizes a movie or does a remake of a classic movie, let's say, you know, the, the original is always there. So whatever people do with Kubert, um, the original is always there. Warren, this is um, fabulous. I'm I'm very keen for us to point out to the listeners that, um, of course, they can read far more detail of all of these stories uh, from Kubert to Us Versus Them, your time at Williams, working on Mortal Kombat, NBA Jam, Terminator 2, etc., etc. In your fabulous uh, memoirs, maybe you can tell us where we can... Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm uh, very, very... Uh excited and proud to to have been able to finish it and release it after working on it for like years but right now it's available in two places one is on a site called blurb.com b-l-u-r-b.com and if you just go to that site and do a search for warren davis you should find it or warren davis memoir either way i think you will you will get it uh and the other place is uh on a place called warren davis shop all one word, dot square, dot site. And that is um, only available in the U.S., unfortunately. That's a U.S.-only website that uh, has an option for a signed copy. So if if somebody wanted it signed, you could order that at warrendavisshop.square.site. Warren, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you, Warren. That was a pleasure talking to you. Same here. I had a wonderful time. Thanks, Warren. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.